Rhonda, thank you very, very much. And Jay, thank you and the team for leading us in worship. Good morning, Vista. It's good to see you. This morning's flooding back lots of memories when you had vacation Bible school. Uh, for many, many years, Vista Grande Baptist would have a vacation Bible school and then take all the decorations and send them to Grace Bible Church. And we would use those decorations week after week, year after year. And so thank you for your partnership in our community. Let me introduce myself just a little bit better. Thank you, Bruce, for the early introductions, but I am Jeff Anderson. I'm a Colorado Springs native, actually graduated from Rampart High School, so if there's anyone from Rampart here, great. If you're from uh, Air Academy or, or uh, Pine Creek, you know, I'm sorry, we'll try to overlook all of that and move on anyway. Uh, pastored Grace Bible Church here for many, many years, and actually we had bought the building that was Vista Grande Baptist way back in the day. Some of you may remember the building that was over on uh, Flint Ridge, and so We've had a great partnership for many, many years. Pastor Chris is a great encouragement to me. When we left Grace Bible Church and I started doing an international Bible conference ministry, my kids were starting to look around where they were going to find a church. My uh, daughter-in-law, Luba, had spent a lot of time in the youth group that was here, and Luba is here today with my son Jason, and our grandbaby is somewhere around here as well. So happy Father's Day to me for them being here. Thank you guys for joining us. So Luba had grown up in the youth group, and then when um, Pastor Chris ministers the word, he has people stand up with reverence for the Bible, and then he sings songs that you guys would sing songs that are familiar, and our son Zeb was uh, at, with us, and he walked out in the parking lot and said, you guys can go to church wherever you want. This is going to be home for me. And so Zeb ended up being in the youth group here for many years, and we we're just really grateful for who you are and what you do. But for you to take some time and make sure that Pastor Chris is getting this sabbatical, it's a long-term run, and if you're making sure that you're taking good care of him, not only are you doing service to your church, you're doing service to our community, so thank you for that. Having left Grace Bible Church, I do Bible conferences for pastors, mostly in Africa and India, the developing world. Most of these pastors, are they, they love the gospel, they're planting churches, they're very effective, but so few of them have any kind of Bible training. And so we'll have a Bible conference for three days where we just read and explain and apply the Bible, just like what you guys get every week and that's exactly what these pastors are hungry for. And so with conferences that started with a couple of hundred, they grew to where we had 25,000 pastors at a conference in Uganda one year. And somewhere along that line, I thought, man, you know what? I might need to devote full time and attention to these conferences. So I still, to this day, do Bible conferences. Last year, we were able to meet with a bunch of pastors in northern Iraq and then uh, go and do a three-day conference for some pastors in Beirut, Lebanon. And so that ministry continues. But early... Uh, Congressman Lamborn contacted me and said, hey, we'd like to have a closer relationship with the faith community. Could you give us some advice? And of course, as you're building a new nonprofit, I, I thought, man, it'd be helpful to have some sort of consulting fee. And they said, well, here's what we'd like to do. We want to convey to churches, pastors, and then all these Christian ministries that are in our community, the services that our office is able to provide. And I, I was like, what kind of services? And they said, well, anytime you're dealing with the federal government, you need an advocate. Can anyone say amen to that, by the way? So if you're needing help with Social Security, or if you're dealing with the VA, or if you're dealing with immigration, whatever that work is. And so early on, I was able to represent the congressman at a funeral. Micah Flick was a sheriff's deputy who was killed in the line of duty. And so I was at the funeral, gave him a, I gave the family a flag that had flown over the U.S. Capitol, and then I mentioned to his, to his uh, widow, Rachel, that if we can be of service. Well, two days later, she called our office in tears. She said, I've been at Social Security all morning. 
They said it's going to take months for me to get an appointment and months after that to get any of our benefits. How am I supposed to feed our children? So that afternoon, we were able to get the right people on the call. She had a phone interview, 30 minutes, and she had all of her benefits awarded to her that day. Because if you're dealing with the federal government, you need an advocate. And so there's some of you that are here who may need an advocate, and I'm going to leave a card up here for the congressman's office, and if there's some way that we can be of service to you. But in addition to that, this role had grown to where I'm actually now able to convene, to pull the community together and say, what can we do better, especially the faith community, our ministries, what can we do to serve our community better together rather than looking to the federal government? We don't believe that Washington, D.C. has the answers for the problems in Colorado Springs. So early on, we began meeting with a bunch of prison ministries and saying if there's going to be meaningful prison reform, it's going to have to come from these ministries that are going in. And so we'd pull them around the table. Or early on, we started addressing student suicide. With the student suicide crisis that we've had in the front range, we don't believe that Washington, D.C. or Denver, Colorado have the answers for our front range problems. And we also believe that it's not just a Youth for Christ or a Young Life or a YMCA or Fellowship of Christian Athletes issue. We said, let's gather all of these youth ministries together. Let's sit them around the table and find out what we can do better together. And so one day, um, there was a, a group represented at the congressman's office, and a guy stood up and said, I'm with Education for a Lifetime, with Life Network. We're in every school in the whole county, and all those health teachers that we know are asking us to address student suicide. But we need a curriculum. The other side of the table was Mark Mayfield from Mayfield Counseling Clinics. And they said, hey, we have this wonderful idea for a curriculum. As a matter of fact, we even have the money to shoot a video for someone to tell their story, to be able to follow that up by asking who can relate, and then we'll have a classroom discussion. But we need someone to tell their story. On the other side of the table was a little girl from uh, the Classical Academy, Project Reasons. And she said, I've got 20 friends who all talk about their story um, and be on this video. A month later, I was at a Life Network gala and they were unveiling a curriculum that would be in all of the schools in our community and frankly became a demonstration that we are so much better together rather than everyone doing their own thing. And so honestly, I'm actually pastoring more now than I ever pastored when I was just at Grace Bible Church. It's just that I have a broader reach. And right now, some of the reform that's happening is we definitely need to, uh, we need to address education reform. And I don't care if it's a, those who are serving on our school boards, those who are teaching in our public schools, those who are involved with charter schools or Christian schools or homeschool, it doesn't matter to me as long as parents are getting involved at the most grassroots level of, of guiding where their kids should be getting education. So those are the things that I get to do with the congressman's office. But for introduction purposes today, for you, Vista Grande Baptist, to know who I am, the most important thing you need to know is that I'm the father-in-law for Caroline Flooring, all right? So Caroline Flooring and the Flooring family, Caroline moved into, uh, married into our family, and we had a wonderful privilege of getting to know them, and so we, uh, we just love and appreciate all of you. Would you turn with me this morning to Psalm 19, please? We already read some scripture this morning and heard some, uh, some songs that are celebrating the value of the Bible. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11, will be the main focus of our attention but I'd also ask you why you hold your finger in Psalm 19 to also take a look at Deuteronomy 6.4, which will kind of help introduce the passage, but also it's a uh, Deuteronomy 6.4 celebrates this day, which is Happy Father's Day to all of you that are here. And we get to celebrate what our fathers have invested in us when they gave us the word of God. So let's stand, please, with reverence for God and his holy word. I'm going to begin in Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. And then we'll introduce that text by looking in Deuteronomy. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. 
The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. And then this is Deuteronomy 6, 4. I'm guessing some of you could quote it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Would you please be seated? As we come to Father's Day, we recognize that God's plan has always been that fathers and mothers are involved in telling the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He has done. See, the whole idea of celebrating fathers is not just a special day of the year. It's something that's to be celebrated every day. Every day we celebrate this reality that there have been fathers who invested the Word into our life. And if not, if you didn't have a Christian father committed to the Scriptures, Maybe you have some sort of father figure who meaningfully invested the word into your life so that you can now teach it to a generation to come. This has been God's A plan going all the way back to the Old Testament law. Deuteronomy 6.4 is a celebration, not just a, a day of celebration like Father's Day, but it's a daily celebration. It's a celebration of covenant. By covenant, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The word Yahweh there, the word Jehovah, is a description of a covenant-seeking God, a God who desires relationship with us. Not just someone who kind of gets everything started with creation and then distantly removes himself and lets it all continue to tick like a watch. No, he is someone who wants to be intimately involved in our life. The Lord our God, Jehovah. He's describing there the same word by which we would come to know the Lord is our Father. The Bible says the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and we cry out, Abba, Father. The Abba, Father idea is that covenant. It's a celebration of a covenant relationship with the Most High God, the, the Jehovah, the one who created heaven and earth. Beyond a celebration of covenant, this is also a celebration of confession. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. When it says the Lord is one, he's making the confession that there's one and only true God. It is God himself who is the only God. Now, when we make that confession and we declare that we are not uh, polytheists or we're not atheists, no, we are believers in one true God, a theistic belief, our confession that there is one God is not a denial that the Father is God and the Spirit is God and Jesus is God. In other words, you can still believe that Jesus is God and yet also believe that the Lord our God is one. And by this confession, we even recognize in the passage of Scripture that there is a certain complexity that is saying more than just that God is the only, the one and the only true God, but it's also providing this reality, that there's a plurality that makes it up. When he says, the Lord our God, Jehovah, is in the singular, but then when it says Elohim, the name God, is the name that's in the plural. And even in this confession, we're recognizing that God, who is a plurality, there's some sort of complexity to this there. We're confessing that he's the one true God. So I can say God is one, but I can also confess and know 
that the Father is God, and the Spirit is God, and Jesus is God. And if you're looking at me and you're saying, hey, Jeff, you're going to have to explain that a little bit further. Well, thankfully, Pastor Chris is going to be back in just a couple of months, and he'll take it a little bit further. But this passage, this confession, is a recognition of the one true God. So we celebrate covenant, we celebrate confession, but we also celebrate communion. We celebrate communion because he comes and he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. You see, this relationship that we have is that intimate fellowship, that communion by which we love the Lord. And before a father or a mother, before you can invest the word of God into the lives of other people, it has to be real in your own life. It has to get way beyond intellectual knowledge. It has to get way beyond just winning Bible trivia contests or even teaching a Sunday school class. No, these words need to be in your heart. And then when you have that communion of the Word of God in your life, then he also celebrates saying, when the Word of God is in your heart, then you shall teach them diligently to your children. This is the celebration of what I'm going to call a commitment, a commitment to teach a generation to come, or we could call it a celebration of communication. See, here's the chain. God wants this Word to be passed from one generation to another to another. And when God is celebrating that communication, he comes and gives the command, teach it diligently. Not just when you're standing at the table on a breakfast and taking your, your uh, shoe off your foot and pounding the table with it to make an emphatic point. That's not what he means by teaching diligently. Instead, it's the idea of repetition. When I was a little kid, I'd watch my dad get ready to go off on a hunting trip. My dad, my mom and dad, they came to Colorado when I was less than a year old. My dad planted Widefield Community Bible Church way down in the Fountain Valley. And uh, so I grew up knowing the gospel, knowing the word of God. My parents instructed me. But when I was a little kid and my dad was getting ready to go on a hunting trip, I remember him sharpening his knife. And when you're honing a blade, you don't just kind of take a wet stone and pour some oil on it and take a blade and just kind of strike it once across and once back. And now it's sharp. No, I can remember even hearing the sound today. I can remember that whetstone. I can hear the back and forth. And it just continued over and over again. There was a repetition to sharpen that blade. And that's what it means when he says, teach it diligently to your children. You don't just teach it fiery, passionately, make sure that they're coming to vacation Bible school. No, he's telling us that there needs to be a repetition where the word of God is so much in your life that now you are able to repetitively teach it and continually give it you give it when you're sitting in your house and when you're walking in the way. When you're working on some hobbies together, man, I love this, that you can teach the, your children diligently when you're skiing down a hill or when you're fishing in a pond or, or when you're coaching their soccer team. You can let the Word of God come into every part of life. And so that's what this passage is, is, is instructing us and celebrating. But the celebration that I'm referring to of Father's Day is a celebration that says the most valuable thing that we could possibly invest into our children is the Word of God. Can anyone say amen to this? And especially in our day, we're coming to recognize that there's such a need for the Word of God to be invested. And so now I want to pivot and talk about the incredible value that we have in the Bible by looking at Psalm 19. And so if you're looking at Psalm 19, you'd recognize that there is a book that is more to be desired than gold. It's sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. And in this passage, he's going to describe the incredible value of the Bible through a repetition that we call Hebrew parallelism. Now, Hebrew parallelism is a beautiful kind of poetry because it doesn't depend upon a rhyme or meter. It doesn't depend upon alliteration only or the sound of certain words. And here's why that's important. 
It becomes important because Hebrew poetry is valuable whether you're reading it in Hebrew or it's being translated into Spanish or Russian or Ukrainian or for us today, English. You see, you can translate it because it doesn't depend upon the sound of the words that are there. Instead, there's a repetition of an idea and that's why we can come and it's just as beautiful when we read words like this. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And when he goes on and gives these repetitions, he's giving repetitions of nouns and adjectives that are telling us that the Bible is so valuable because of what it is. But then there's repetition of phrases by which he says, you're converting the soul, you're making wise the simple, you're rejoicing the heart, you're enlightening the eyes. This is a repetition of the verbs and the adverbs by which we're understanding that the Bible is so valuable because of what it does. The outline today is really simple. The value of the Bible because of what it is and the value of the Bible because of what it does. And when we recognize this immense treasure that's been given to us and entrusted to us, then we start recognizing why we should treasure it in our own heart and then why we should communicate it to generations to come. So this passage begins, as I've already mentioned, with all of these repetitious words. And if you'll bear with me, I have trouble with my eyes. And so I have to read this rather than go to a physical Bible, which would be my choice. But this way, I'm able to get it a little bit brighter. I'm able to get the font really big. As a matter of fact, if I hold this up, you can probably read it from where you are right there. But for me, I'm going to go ahead and just repeat this. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Did you hear them? The law, the commandment, the statutes, the judgments, all of these are synonyms for what we know as the Bible. He's talking about the revelation of God. But within this, they all, all those phrases that are synonyms have one phrase in common. It is of the Lord. The word L-O-R-D, at least it's capitalized in all capitals for in my New King James Bible that I'm reading today. But that is a translation of the name Jehovah. And he's telling us that Jehovah desires relationship and that the relationship happens through this book. This is the law of the Lord. It's the commandment of the Lord. These are the statutes of the Lord. And so this becomes valuable because it's the revelation of Jehovah. As the revelation of Jehovah is intended for us that we should look back at verse 1. As a matter of fact, Psalm 19, verse 7 is building upon Psalm 19, verse 1. Take a look back there when it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. In that passage, he's talking about the general revelation of God. The word God there is the most general name for God. It's the name Elohim. It's the name that's given to us in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so that general name for Elohim is telling us that there are certain things that you can know about God just by observing his creation that's around us. You can know that he's big and great and powerful when you go and see the mountains. Sometimes I enjoy running um, the Pikes Peak Ascent. Back in the day when I'd be up climbing and running the mountain, one of the reasons I loved being on that huge mountain is because I just looked down and realized how small Colorado Springs is compared to that mountain and how small I am. And I get in my proper place and I realize that the God who made all these things is great and powerful. One of the reasons I love going out into the dark and camping, getting away from the city lights, is because you can look up and see the, the, the moon and the stars and you can recognize that as vast as this universe is, our God is so much greater 
But God has made himself known through the creation that's around us. That's why it's a wonderful privilege for dads to be able to take their kids out on a skiing trip and be able to enjoy the general revelation of God in creation. It's wonderful that he can take them fishing. But listen, if you're only letting God be seen by your exposing them to the general world of creation, then you're missing something really important. You see, God wants you to know more than just his greatness or the fact that he's good. The Bible says he caused the rain to fall on the just and on the unjust. He provides food. And so the food that we see can tell us that God is good. But more than being great, more than being good, more than even the beauty of his creation and of his creativity, God wants us to know details about him. He wants us to know that he is holy and just and good. And you know what? You wouldn't get this by sitting next to a beach watching the sunset or the sunrise on the ocean. He, you, he wants you to know that his mercies are new every morning and great is his faithfulness. He wants you to know how to have intimate fellowship with him. And that's why we go beyond general revelation into the value that this book is more to be desired than gold, is sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. And we learn that because the law of the Lord is perfect. Now, I'm going to go back and talk one more time about this general revelation. Take a look at verse 2. When is it that God is speaking? Well, it says day unto day, utter speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. That means that God is speaking or making himself known in a general way at all times. Take a look at verse 3. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. That means in every language, God is making himself known. Every culture. Verse 4. Their line has gone throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. That means that in every place. Are you hearing it? In every language, in every place, at all times, God is making himself known in a general way. And yet... As great as that is, there's something that we are still longing for, a deeper revelation. Now, about 30 years ago, I used to get something really valuable in the mail every couple of days. This was back before we had unlimited texting. A lot of, a lot of people nowadays can't even imagine what life was like before we had text messages, but this was before unlimited text messages, certainly before unlimited phone calls. Back in that day, you had to pay long-distance charges for a, for a call. I was living in East Tennessee where I was a youth pastor. My fiance at the time, Nancy, was living in South Carolina, Greenville, South Carolina, where she was finishing up college. And so as a youth pastor, I wasn't able to afford all those long distance calls. We didn't have unlimited texting and we didn't even have email. Go ahead, gasp. The younger generation like, you didn't even have email back in that day? We didn't even have email. So if I wanted to have communion, fellowship, if I wanted to have a growing relationship with Nancy, well, every couple of days, I would receive a love letter in the mail. When I went running out to that mailbox, I was looking for something valuable. It had nothing to do with publishers clearing house sweepstakes, which was also happening at that time. But I was looking for that letter. And when I read the letter from Nancy, I wasn't just perusing it one time and discarding it as if it had no value. No, man. I read over every detail of that letter. I would hold it up to the light to see if there were tear stains where she was missing me as she was writing it. Uh, I'd smell it to see if maybe I could smell a lingering perfume that was there, or even better, maybe she sprayed that thing with perfume so that I could even smell her. And then I would look and see if there were lit prints at the end of that thing. I mean, I valued every part of that love letter because this was a revelation of someone who wanted to have relationship, intimacy, closeness. My friends, this book is more to be desired than gold. It's sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb because this is the love letter of Jehovah. He doesn't just want you to know general truth about him. He doesn't just want you to know that he created everything. He wants you to know. He wants you to know that he's holy and just. His mercies are new every morning. He wants you to know his love. He wants you to know 
that he knows the number of hairs that are on your head and that he sees all of what concerns and troubles you. He knows what you need before you even ask. This book is so valuable because of what it is. But it's not just the nouns. It's not just that this is the love letter of Jehovah. There's also an expression by which he says it is true, it is just, it is sure. And all those adjectives are really repetition of two main ideas. The first idea is that it's foundational. And I love being up here on a platform that's not shaking. It's good and solid. The stairs, that's a whole different thing, man. You've got to watch yourself coming up the stairs sometimes. But this solid foundation of this is a little bit different than some of the other churches I, I speak at. Sometimes I go to a place where, you know, a big old guy like me, if I move too much, that thing starts wobbling a little bit. I want a foundation. The foundation I'm talking about is the kind of foundation that we value because, man, if you're going to build your home, especially your dream house, a multi-million dollar mansion, you want to build that thing on a foundation. I read about it or I see it on, on the news every year, usually in Southern California. No offense to anyone who's in Southern California, but people build these multi-million dollar dream homes on the side of a hill. And it just doesn't make sense to me that they build it on, on this side of the hill. And then when the rain comes and the mud flows, their house goes f flooding down with a mudslide is there. That just doesn't make any sense to me. If you're going to build a multi-million dollar dream house, don't you want to build it on a solid foundation? The Lord Jesus told us the value of a foundation when he says the wise man is the one who hears the word of God and he does it and he is like a wise man who builds his house upon a rock. And yeah, the rain's going to fall and the wind's going to blow and the storm's going to beat against the house, but it's going to stand firm because it's built upon a rock. Dad's there's no other foundation that can be laid in the life of your children than the Lord Jesus Christ and the Word of God. And these last three years have demonstrated to us that all other ground is shifting or sinking sand. Am I right? I mean, just think about that. Three years ago, we had such confidence that the U.S. economy was a good, solid foundation. We never even imagined that the U.S. economy could be turned off in one night, and it would be so hard to get it stirred back up. I'm not making a political comment. I'm telling you that even the U.S. economy is shifting sand and is not a foundation that is worthy of your full confidence. Three years ago, man, I had so much confidence in the medical system, healthcare. I mean, we had gotten to the point where I just believed everything they said. And by the way, I love and appreciate all of our doctors and nurses, especially the ones who served us so faithfully during this, this COVID pandemic that was there. My, my mother is a two-time survivor of cancer, she got COVID, and, and she's over 80 years old, and so she spent several weeks in the hospital where she got great care of people who nursed her back. But you know what? Any of us that before COVID have full confidence in doctors are shocked that we get to a point where some doctors are saying, absolutely, take this treatment. It really works. And other doctors are saying, absolutely, don't take that treatment. This is what you need to do. In other words, politics has even made its way into healthcare. And now what I've learned is that all of my trust in healthcare is like trusting in a shifting sand rather than a true foundation. Hey, how about the foundation of uh, education? All of us were so confident that, you know what, bureaucratic education, they're going to do the right thing for my family. <laughs> they're going to make sure that they're watching out for my children. And that has now been shaken to the point we're coming and recognizing we better step in to find out what's best for our children and serve in our community because big bureaucratic education, it's not a foundation that you can trust. You see, all I'm telling you is that maybe the shaking that we've had, maybe the difficulties we've had in these last couple of years have brought us back to a point where we realize there is only one solid rock upon which you can build your, your relationships, like your marriage, 
Uh, only one solid rock upon which you can build your family. Only one solid rock upon which you can build your life, your business, or our community. Friends, when I go over to Africa and India or the third developing world preaching to them, I don't preach them an American message. I don't preach to them American economy or American politics because they don't need any of that. Here's what they need. They need the solid foundation of the Word of God. And that solid foundation of the Word of God, just reading it and explaining it and applying it, that becomes the foundation for everything else that they desperately need. And fathers, would you hear me today? This book is more to be desired than gold. It's sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb because this is the solid rock upon which your children can build their lives. And that's not just true for my son, Jason. It's true for his children. A son that's on the way or a little girl that's there, she needs the solid rock, the foundation that is more to be desired than gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. There's a second idea of those adjectives. It's not only a solid rock upon which we can build but it's also, it says, it's, it, it is unchanging, that it's perfect. That means it never needs to be new and improved. Now, I've got two phones that are here today. One of them is a government-issued work phone. This is an iPhone, and so I just want to thank you all for your contributions for this uh, iPhone that I have. The second one's a personal phone. The personal phone, I got a Google Pixel because my son Zeb assured me that this is the best phone you could possibly get. But you know how frustrating it is? that as soon as you have an i7, they come out with a better, new and improved i. You have an i8, and then you have an i9, you have an i10. And then not only are J, are they always improving it, but then they add letters to the numbers, i10s or whatever it is is there. And now I'm not even sure which i we're up to, but it always has to be new and improved. The Google Pixel, I mean, Zeb assured me, Dad, this is the best phone you could possibly get. Six months later, <laughs> there was something that was new and improved. Why? Because they want to always get you buying something. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but as soon as it has a little message that says, hey, it's time for an update, update your phone, click this button. As soon as I hit that, I can be sure it's going to be slower and the memory is going to go wrong and I'm going to have to go back in and work out a new payment plan for my next new and improved phone. Aren't you glad that when it comes to the Bible, you'll never have Bible 7 or Bible 8 or Bible 10 or even Bible 10S? You have a book that is forever established in heaven. It never needs to be new, improved, or upgraded. Hallelujah. They're not always selling you the new payment option. Instead, you have a book that has been established as truth forever. It never will need to be new and improved. Now, some of you are sitting there saying, hey, wait a second, what about all these versions? I mean, you're reading New King James. We read ESV. What about those who have NIV? Wait a second. The reason we have different versions is not because the Bible has changed. The reason we have different versions is because the language changes. Tom, your children sometimes speak a whole different vernacular than what you speak. But the unchanging truth of God can now be translated into a vernacular of the language because it changes. But we still want that unchanging truth of God to be given to people. Listen, you are never wasting your time when you memorize this book, when you study this book, when you teach this book. Because you are now investing in a future generation, the only thing that will never be new and improved. Hallelujah. You can go ahead and say amen to this one. This book is more to be desired than gold. It's sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb because of what it is. But it's also valuable because of what it does. And there's four main verbs, converting the soul, making wise the simple, rejoicing the heart. And then he says, enlightening the eyes. I'm going to expand upon two of them. It begins by telling us that it converts the soul. To convert the soul is the idea of going a certain direction, Jay, and realizing that you're, I'm in the wrong place. 
here's where I am, but that's where I need to be. It's basically the idea of being lost. Now, it's also an expansion upon a biblical idea of repentance. See, biblical repentance is not a work that we promise God that we're going to do better and change our way. It's not by works. But biblical repentance is a recognition, I'm going down a path that's leading to destruction. And with a change of mind and a change of direction, I'm coming back to God. Frankly, biblical repentance is defined by faith. And biblical faith is defined by repentance. They're two sides of the same coin. If I'm totally confusing you, good news. Pastor Chris is coming back in just a couple of months. He'll straighten all of this out. But here's the idea. Converting the soul is to realize, here's where I am, but that's where I need to be. Here's what it's describing. The value of a map. You see, if you're lost, there's nothing you value more than a map. Now, just after Nancy and I got married, and by the way, I did marry the girl. Those love letters all worked, and we got married. We moved to Colorado Springs, which is my hometown. But that meant that when we started having children, that their grandparents lived all the way in South Carolina. And boy, those kids came fast and furious. We had a girl, then a boy, and then we had twins. And so there was a time when we had four kids that were three and under. And then we had another little guy come along, Zeb. So we had five children. And so out of all these kids, we had to take them back to South Carolina to visit our grandparents. And whenever we made that trip, we drove. You're like, Jeff, why didn't you buy plane tickets? Well, did you hear me say we have five children? Five plane tickets are expensive. And then what makes it even worse is I'd rather rather drive than take five kids through security nowadays. I mean, it's brutal. And on top of that, when we drove, we'd always drive straight through, 20 20 to 24 hours driving straight through. And some of you are like, Jeff, why would you drive straight through? Did anybody hear me say we have five children? And if you leave at night and drive through the night, they sleep half the time that you're in the car. So, like, we're halfway there before they even know what hit them, right? But if you're going to drive from Colorado to South Carolina, you have to go through the most confusing city in America to drive through, St. Louis. St. Louis has roads coming in and out from every different direction. They have loops that are going around and it's so confusing. And what makes it worse You have the convergence of all these different rivers that are coming in. So you have bridges constantly. I have never driven through St. Louis without getting lost. Usually I find myself in the wrong state when I'm lost. One of the times that we were getting ready to go was Christmas Eve. I had just spent all day with Christmas Eve candlelight services. I was pooped out, but I said to our family, look, let's try to get back to South Carolina for at least part of Christmas Day. And so we left that night to drive. By some miracle, I was able to stay awake all night long. Well, it wasn't really a miracle. Here's my secret, (laughs) Mountain Dew. If you drink Mountain Dew, that keeps you awake for a certain period of time. I mean, there's sugar, there's caffeine, your eyes twitch a little bit. And and at first, the caffeine keeps you awake, and then eventually the pain from having to go to the bathroom, that keeps you awake for a good little while. But then the other part of my secret, Tom, is I always eat sunflower seeds. And I'm not sure if it was all the salt from the sunflower seeds or if it was all the Sugar and, uh, sugar and caffeine from the Mountain Dew. But after 12 hours, when we're approaching St. Louis, I started imagining that things are falling out of the back of a truck and I'm swerving to miss them. I'm like, okay, Nancy, it's time for you to take over. And she asked me while she's yawning and waking up, she said, what road do we take? And I'm like, mm, 64 or 57 or 26. Well, it's the same one that we always take. I obviously gave her the wrong road because she woke me up two hours later. She said, Jeff, are we supposed to be driving up toward Indianapolis? Well, we needed to go down toward Nashville. And by the time she woke me up and I was so confused, I asked her to pull over. We went to a little gas station in southern Indiana. People, they don't even speak English in southern Indiana. 
I had no idea that I needed a foreign language. So I walked in and I said, excuse me, can you tell me where I am? That's when they looked at me like I was some sort of redneck because I didn't even know where I was. So I said, how about this? Do you have a map? Sure enough, they pulled out a map and I said, show me where I am. Oh, here's where you are. Oh, here's where you need to be. And look, there's a road. 25 minutes later, we were on the right path, on the right direction because when you're lost, there's nothing more valuable to you than a map. The Bible is so desirable, more desirable than gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb, because it tells us where we are, and it tells us where we need to be. If you want to have a relationship with Jehovah, here's what the Bible teaches us, that God's eyes are so pure that he can't even look upon sin. He cannot be defiled or touched by any of our sins. The Bible says that you need to be holy, even as the Lord your God is holy. As a matter of fact, he goes even a little bit further. He tells us that all of our righteousnesses, that means all of our religious activity, our morality, he said all of it's like filthy rags and it's not pleasing to God. Jesus even comes to this point where he says, if you want to have a relationship with Jehovah, you have to be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. He tells us where we need to be, but it's also the Bible that tells us where we are. The Bible teaches us that we are all like sheep who have gone astray. Every one of us have turned our own way. The Bible tells us that there is not one righteous, not even one. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Friends, if you think church membership can get you to Jehovah, the Bible has a different message for you. If you think that as much of good works that you do, you got another thing coming. But it's the Bible that teaches us that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father but through him. See, it's the Bible alone that gives us this wonderful, glorious gospel message that we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. And my friends, what I love about this message is that it's not a Baptist message, and it's not an American message. It's not even an English message. We're talking about something that was not rediscovered 500 years ago with the Reformation. We're talking about a message that was revealed by God by which he told us how we can be converted and we can come into a right relationship with him. This isn't something we thought up. This is something that God himself has sent down. Now, let me just help some of the teenagers that are here. Whether it's flooring teenagers or other teenagers that are here, you know what? You can get on Google and you start doing a search and you're like, wait, I can learn about Islam. I can learn about Hinduism. I can learn about a lot of religions. And you get really confused because you start thinking, what makes this one different? Aren't they all the same? No, they're not. They are the same in the sense that all man-made religions are talking about how that you can appease God. So the Hinduism, as an example, is filled with lots of self-righteousness and rules that you have to follow, morality. I mean, you, there's nobody who has family values like Hindu families. I mean, they are very committed to the righteousness that seems to be outside. And, and, and you know what, if that's not enough, you have to go to this temple and appease this God, and you can take these prayers, and you'll see all kind of, but you know what, it can all be summarized by human works that are trying to appease their God. That's not entirely different than Islam. If you're familiar with Islam, you'd find the five pillars of Islam that begin with a confession of your faith in God and his prophet, but then it follows with the prayers Sometimes three a day, sometimes five a day. And if you go a little bit distant, further distance to pray, there's more points in that. And beyond that, there's the almsgiving that is there. And beyond the almsgiving, then you would also have, you would also have a pilgrimage by which you can go. And if you go to Mecca, then you're really gaining points. But don't think that somehow I'm condescending any of them. Because there are a lot of Christian churches that are filled with the same good works system. 
They'll have this sacrament that you follow or this activity or this rule and regulation. And so it doesn't matter whether it's Christianity by its so-called or Islam or Hinduism. Let me tell you something. They all have something in common in that you're trying to work to make yourself acceptable to your God, whoever he may be. Friends, the reason this book is so valuable, more to be desired than gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb, is because this book alone teaches us that it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saves us. It's this book that teaches us that it's by grace that we're saved through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. See, this book is so valuable as a map that converts the soul and tells you how you can come into relationship with Jehovah. Beyond that, the passage tells us that it makes wise the simple. Man, I wish I had time, Jay. I would tell you even more about making wise the simple because right now the world around us needs some wisdom. Some would say amen to that. I mean, they are so confused, and there's so much foolishness that's going on in the world around us. This book is so valuable because it brings wisdom to those who will simply follow it. It also brings joy to the heart. Come on, people. There's so much despair and hopelessness around us today, and with all that despair and hopelessness, I don't care if we're talking about veterans who are definitely needing some, some good care in their life. And by the way, veteran hopelessness will not be addressed by pharmaceuticals and the VA. I'm waiting. Amen. If you're a veteran that's here and you're like, man, you know what? They're making the problem worse. They're throwing one drug after another after another. It's not solving any of my problems. Wait a second. There is a place that you can find joy. And that joy is not about how your IRA performs. That joy is not about how much you pay at a gas, at a gas tank. By the way, that's a little discouraging right now, isn't it? But there's a joy that surpasses all of that, and this book rejoices the heart. It means that it brings some sort of joy, contentment, dignity, purpose, in spite of all the circumstances. Shucks, I don't even have time to talk about that one. But then there's the last one. He said it's so valuable because this book is more to be desired than gold. It's sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb because this book enlightens the eyes. That means that if you're out in darkness... There's nothing more valuable to you than light. Long time ago, when I graduated from Rampart High School, 1987, for anyone who's asking, I was the class of 87 at Rampart. My, my younger brother, Dan, and I went on a camping trip. Dan and I were kind of sibling rivals. He was just close enough in, to me in age where I was the older brother who tried to keep him under my thumb a little bit. And he had grown bigger than me at that point. And so we had some rivalry. But this camping trip was when everything turned around. See, we went up back behind Pikes Peak one day, uh, way out there, and, and above a, a cliff, so there's a stream going down through a valley, and we were way up on the ridge. We set up our camp, and then we went walking down through trails and got down in the water, and we were playing, fishing. Well, I decided to go back to camp, and Jay, I'll tell you exactly why. I saw a snake, and man, I hate snakes. So I decided to go back up to the safe high ground. Dan was still down there doing his thing with his dog and having a lot of fun that was down there. Me, I got, got up and had... The best meal you can possibly have around a campfire. Whew, ramen noodles never tasted so good as they do around a campfire. And then I started eating the best dessert. Man, I, I was roasting my marshmallows and having my s'mores. Everything was good for me until I realized, whoa, it got dark. Now, I'm not sure it was because there was no moon that night or because the mountains and when the sun went down, it went pitch black. Like, you can't see your hand in front of your face. So I later heard that Dan was out there wandering around, tripping over rocks and and, uh, and tree roots. He was worried that he was going to fall off a cliff and down into the valley. 
he was scraping himself on the trees, bumping into all these things, and finally got to the point where he said, I can't see anything. I'm going to sit down and hope my eyes would adjust. Problem was, as soon as he sat down, that wet dog came and started rubbing him all over. Now, not only is he dark, but it's cold. He's lost. He was in trouble. But the hero of this story, Jeff Anderson, went over and grabbed a bunch of kindling and fuel from the fire that we had collected. I set it out on a rock that kind of jutted out over the valley. I brought a little bit of the fire from the campfire, and I lit that thing, and soon, whew, I mean, it just lit up the whole sky. It was the biggest bonfire I'd ever seen. And soon, five minutes later, Dan comes walking into camp. I mean, he was scraped, battered, bruised. He had marks all over him, but he grabbed a hold of me, and he thanked me for saving his life. Every once in a while now, he comes back and he says, hey, I think we should go through family therapy because how mean you were as an older brother. And I'm like, whatever, I saved your life. <laughs> My friends, if you're out in darkness, there's nothing more valuable to you than light. We read it earlier in the service today, and it's still true. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And what's desperately needed for our children, for this community, for the generation that's rising up, is that they desperately need to find something that's more to be desired than gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. I'm just telling you that what you're holding in your lap right there, your Bible, is a fortune that you're holding at your fingertips. And you're tempted to neglect it. Some of you are neglecting the Bible because you spend so much time on Fox News. I'm just telling you, stop. All that Fox News stuff is so depressing. Come back to something that's more foundational than that. Some of you have a tendency to get on Facebook so much and you're just spending all your time reading everyone's snarky comments on Facebook. Let me help your life be so much better. Come back to that valuable book. Don't neglect it. Treasure it. Love it. Hide it in your own heart, commune with God through it, and then be prepared to invest it into your grandchildren and your children. You say, well, I don't have a relationship with my children. And then guess what? We got vacation Bible school and Sunday school, and we got youth. And you, you can invest it in the youth of this church. If you don't want to do it here, then we desperately need mentors that are going to get involved with our young people because people, the world is in darkness, and we have the light of the world. This world is lost. We have the map that gives them direction. This book is more to be desired than gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Don't neglect the fortune in your fingertips and make sure that we're investing it in a generation to come.